The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. All right. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. It's Michelle Jawando coming to you live from our studios here in Washington, D.C. It's always great to be with you. And I would love to hear from you and I would love for you to join the conversation. If you're interested, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And what a day it is as we speak uh, Neil Gorsuch, who is currently on the 10th Circuit and is President Trump's pick for the Supreme Court of the United States, is testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I ran over here from the hearing to join you, the Leslie Marshall family, um, and I'm excited because of the guests who are joining me to talk about this uh, This. Joining me in studio is none other than Jocelyn Fry. She's a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. You can find her on Twitter at CAP, C-A-P-W-O-M-E-N. Jocelyn, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Michelle. So glad to be here with you and the rest of the audience. Thank you. And also joining us in, uh, actually not in studio, but on the phone. We know you're here in spirit, Emily. Um, None other than Emily Martin. She is the General Counsel and VP for Workplace Justice here at the National Women's Law Center. You can find her on Twitter at NWLC. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So this week, um, we kicked off the hearings, as I shared, but one bombshell that broke um, yesterday before the start, yesterday was the first day of the hearings, and our Leslie Marshall listeners know I often talk about the Supreme Court, lower courts, state courts here on air, but yesterday, a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee was released about some troubling statements that Neil Gorsuch made and one of his former students allege. Emily, do you want to tell our listeners that because of all the great work your organization did and were able to assist with that letter? Sure. So the letter came from a former student of Judge Gorsuch. Judge Gorsuch has in the past taught a class on legal ethics and professionalism at Colorado University Law School. And the student said that in that class last spring, Judge Gorsuch made comments implying that women intentionally manipulate companies when they accept jobs um, and don't reveal that they plan to have children and then later take maternity leave. And Judge Gorsuch said, according to this letter writer, that a lot of them don't come back after maternity leave. She said that uh, in the class, Judge Gorsuch indicated that companies not only could ask job applicants, female job applicants, whether they plan to become pregnant, but that they really had to, to protect their own financial interests. So those statements certainly raised a lot of concerns for us, given that they really go against um, decades of instruction from the Supreme Court, from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, 
regarding treating women equally in, in the workplace and not uh, disadvantaging them based on stereotypes about pregnancy, about their role as mothers. So, you know, Jocelyn, you've spent much of your career working on issues around uh, pay discrimination, employment discrimination. What I find most interesting about those comments is it it does really reflect what I think um, probably something Emily and myself and you as women in a predominantly still male dominated field, the law, um, you hear about the baby track if you're interested um, in working at a big firm and, you know, well, if you're going to have a family, there are certain decisions you're going to make about the law. And it seems to reflect kind of that view um, about women and, and just a very outdated Mad Men-esque type view of working women. I think that's right. I mean, what's um, distressing about the allegation is that it does take you back to a time um, where where women were uh, uh, viewed as the exception rather than the rule mm-hmm. in, in uh, the legal profession and in a lot of what people would call non-traditional careers. And I think at this point, whether it's 2016 or 2017, um, you know, the context is different and we sort of expect the conversation to be different. Mm. Um, It ought not to be um, about, you know, whether or not women can work and, you know, be pregnant and have kids. Like that, it it feels old because it is old, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. women have been in the workforce for for decades. And uh, if you talk to a lot of businesses, what you find is that businesses will tell you, we've taken steps to retain women um, and we want to encourage more women uh, who may be child, of childbearing age to nonetheless stay in the workforce, have their families, but also come back to us. So the notion that somehow the conversation is about, uh, you know, are you sure pregnant women can really handle it? And, you know, shouldn't they just, you know, be at home? Like that, it just feels odd mm-hmm. and it feels off. Yeah. And I think in the conversation with law students asking about these types of questions, we want to get them into the place where um, the current conversation, right? Well, we don't want to be focused on how do we go backwards. Mm -hmm. We want to go forwards and we want to talk about, you know, how do you position folks to grapple with complicated questions um, that they're going to confront every day? That's right. So, Emily, you know, I know the National Women's Law Center, you put out a report writ large about Judge Gorsuch and this nomination and what it really meant for women. What, What are you telling people and advising people as they've been calling this center, asking questions about who Judge Gorsuch is? Well, we um, have opposed the confirmation of Judge Gorsuch because we think that his record, not just the letter that was released earlier this week, but his record as a judge over the years really demonstrates a failure to, um, to protect and respect women's legal rights. One key example of that is his decision in the Hobby Lobby case before it went up to the Supreme Court, where he um, 
where he showed very little regard for the idea that women need to have contraceptive access and was wholly focused on the employer's interests and the employer's um, asserted concerns in providing that contraceptive access. In the case that followed Hobby Lobby, where an employer was able to opt out of providing contraceptive coverage for employees just by signing a form saying that the employer objected to providing it and somebody else would provide contraception to employees. Even in that case, Judge Gorsuch was very focused on the alleged burden on the employer and really blind to the impact on the women who would be denied contraceptive coverage, contraceptive access under that employer's policy. We think that's really indicative of a very disturbing tendency to elevate the rights and interests of employers and large corporate interests over the rights of individuals and specifically of women. And frankly, there's some commonality between what he is said to have said in Mm -hmm. that legal ethics course about um, the cost to employers of providing maternity benefits and what if the woman doesn't come back and the focus on employers' um, objections to providing contraceptive coverage to their female employees without much attention to what the women working for those employers have at stake. Well, you know, I always think it's funny in, in, in these conversations about, oh, if women get pregnant and they leave work, well, what kind of environment um, could, are there other reasons why that particular employee may not want to come back to the workplace, right? There's just this kind of idea that it is all on the employee and there's nothing about the environment in which the employee uh, employee then works. So I think, you know, know, it, it will be interesting to see how Judge Gorsuch, I'm actually watching here in studio where Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota is questioning him on some of these very issues. So over the next few days, this will continue to play out. Now, Emily, I know we are going to lose you, but if people have questions and, um, and are interested in learning more about NWLC, where can they go? They should go to nwlc.org. We should have a longer report discussing (laughs) Judge Gorsuch's background history record going up in the next day or so. We also have a lot of blog posts. You can follow us on Twitter as well as uh, we're watching the hearing and weighing in on what we're hearing and not hearing. And I will say before I go, one of the really disturbing things about the hearing today is that Judge Gorsuch refused to say that he believed it'd be evidence of unlawful sex discrimination if an employer were to ask female job applicants but not male Male. job applicants about their family plans. That's right. So there are a lot of there are a lot of things that are coming out in the hearing that bear close scrutiny. Emily Martin, uh, General Counsel and VP for Workplace Justice at the National Women's Law Center. She's going to leave us, but Jocelyn Fry is staying in studio. And when we would come back, we're going to talk about this great event they had here at CAF this week. And we'll dig into that and much more. This is Michelle Jawanto on The Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. 
back. This is Michelle Jawando, a true American woman here on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you, and I hope you join the conversation at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can join the conversation on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. I'm back in studio with none other than Jocelyn Fry. She's a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. And Jocelyn, you know, over the break, uh, you made a really great point, and and I would love for you to share with our listeners uh, the wonderful event that you had here um, this week with the former senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett, and senior advisor to the president, Tina Chin, uh, Catherine Lehman from the Equal Opportunity Commission, really talking about the status of where women are today. But you made this, this great point, and, you know, they often say don't, don't save the best radio for the breaks, but it really was a great line. So you have to share it with our listeners. Well, sure. I mean, I, I think when we when we consider the um, the nomination of uh, uh, Judge Gorsuch, um, you know, the real issue from a gender discrimination perspective is um, how do you ensure that women are treated fairly under the law? Um, we have a whole body of case law around reproductive rights, around sexual harassment, sex discrimination, pregnancy discrimination, and much of those, much of that law rests on one fundamental question, which is how do you ensure that women are treated equal under the law? What does gender equality really mean? And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, the real question of a women's equality, gender equality, rests in the hands of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ultimately makes that decision about whether or not a woman's right to uh, seek an abortion, whether a woman's right to decide how to handle her family and, and to leave work and come back, whether or not a woman is subject to sexual harassment. Like all of those questions have rested on the court's determination that our principle of equal justice and the law extends to women in a way that they have the ability to determine for themselves sort of the direction and course of their lives. And so when we when we look at some of these questions and we look at some of these cases, the real issue is where do women rank, mm. right? Like is women's, you know, ability to make a decision about their family and the size of their family more important than what their employer thinks? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like th- just those, like basic questions. Th- those, yeah. those are the basic yeah. questions. Yeah. And so we are going to get caught up in lots of facts and there's going to go back. And, but there's sort of th- this core principle mm-hmm. that undergirds all of these cases that's really fundamental to whether or not women enjoy the same privileges and rights as other as men in our society. So, Justin, why do we find ourselves, you know, we are at this um, at this moment where we have, I guess, uh, you know, the Saturday Night Live, the best way I can describe it is Saturday Night Live made fun of Ivanka Trump. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they shared <laughs> is that, you know, she's a, a feminist. She cares about families. And one of the characters says, like, how? And I think that that in some ways, um, you know, you saw the commercials during the Super Bowl. You know, every daughter should dream as much as every son. Um and it seems like there's almost this fad emerging 
that at a basic level, culturally, we should say that women's equality um, and the way we treat boys and girls should be the same. But yet, when we go back to kind of how we get there, what Mm -hmm. undergirds and what makes that possible, we're still not there. And in some ways, it seems like our policies are going backwards in the opposite direction. That's exactly right. And it's part of the reason that we had the event yesterday where we focused on the, the difference between sort of the rhetoric and the reality. Because you're right. I mean, people now get it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't say I'm against equal pay. Right. I'm against equality, that it's a bad thing. So people have figured out, here's the, here are the words that I should say. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing that I should be for. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, the well-intentioned people, they may believe it in principle. But the reality is that the promise of our law is not in and of itself enough. You, mm-hmm. you have to take steps to actually make the promise of equality real. Mm. And that is nuts and bolts enforcement. It's actually making sure that when people have cases on the ground that actually the law works in practice. I mean, that's the hard work. I mean, if you think about some of the classic um, um, things like Brown versus Board mm-hmm. and all those things, mm-hmm. like those were f- amazing cases, but people didn't get those rights overnight. You had right, to work right, for it. Right. And so the event that we had yesterday was really focused on the work of the Obama administration Mm -hmm. where they really tried to look comprehensively at women's status and what Mm -hmm. are the complemented policies that we need, not as women as separate beings, but as integral to how we move forward as a nation. That's right. That, you know, women's economic security is not just a nice thing to do. It makes sense for most families because women are supporting most families. Mm -hmm. These are family questions, issues around economic expansion, job growth, health care. Those are basic questions of which women have to be a part of it. That's right. Um, And so we had not only the the past folks who moved that agenda forward, but we had uh, Catherine Lehman from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. We had Wendy Chun Hoon from Family Values at Work. We had Serene Jones, who's a theologian and president, first woman president of Union Theological Seminary, to really position us and talk about how do we move forward. That's right. Right. That's like right. why? Why are these issues so important to how we fo- move forward? collectively as a nation, we have to get out of the business of separating women out. That's right. It's sort of novelties and nice things to do. This is, you know, sort of, you know, they're... <laughs> oh, they're part- so pretty. We should care about exactly. their little cute Ex- women's equality rights. Exactly. Oh, those things. <laughs> this, you know, we're, we're well past that. Right, And, and right. I think the interesting is that the public is It's past it, too. Oh, right. my goodness. I can't believe our time has come to the end. Jocelyn Fry, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress, will be right back talking all things of Affordable Care Act and who is hurt by repeal. This is Michelle Jawanda on the Leslie Marshall Show. Marshall Show. Always great to be with you. And many thanks to my guest last segment, Jocelyn Fry and Emily Martin. If you want to join in the conversation, please go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. I told you it was another crazy day in Washington, D.C. I was leaving, or actually this morning, on my way to the uh, Judiciary Committee for hearings on Neil Gorsuch.
bridge, but my cab was stuck because a certain President 45 and his um, entourage uh, stopped traffic as he headed up to, I believe, a meeting with House Republicans, um, I think maybe members of the Freedom Caucus, to talk about um, their turn at repealing the Affordable Care Act. You know, since he was on the campaign trail, Trump has talked repeatedly about repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. And I'm excited because I have two guests in studio who can help break down what that means, where we are today, and what's happening on the ground to defeat that. So joining is a friend of the show, Maura Calson. She is the Managing Director of Health Policy here at the Center for American Progress. Maura, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us for, I believe, the first time is Samya Narenchan. He is the National Issues Campaign Manager at Organizing for Action, OFA. You can find him on Twitter at A at S-N-A-R-E-C-H-A. Samya, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank Pleasure to be you. here. Thank you both. All right, so Mora, he held up my traffic. He's trying to take health care from 20 million people plus. 24. 24, thank you. <laughs> we like to be specific on the Leslie Marshall Show. What is the latest and greatest? Well, I think that... Um, I just I always like starting with this whenever people mention the numbers is behind you know those millions and millions of numbers it just sounds very abstract but you know there are real people behind there right. um, and you know people who will a become uninsured or b will see their health care costs skyrocket if this horrible piece of legislation becomes law so we're we're just in a waiting and a flurry of a lot of. Um, activity, a lot of um, grassroots activity, a lot of lobbying on the Hill. Um, in a perverse joke, the um, Republicans will be voting to repeal the law and replace it with this with this garbage, basically, on the <laughs> on the seventh anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. Oh my gosh, is that true? Yes, yes. So oh, Thursday, Sonya's in here, like, yep, Michelle, get over it. It's bad. <laughs> so anyhow, I mean, so um, oh. so, but it, I would say it's like not all gloom right now okay. because um, they are really in a world of hurt getting the votes that they need. Um, I think that there are members of the Freedom Caucus who are, you know, the very far right wing of the Republican Party, and they hate the bill because they think it's too generous. And then mm. there are moderate Republicans on the other side who are really worried about people in their districts losing um, coverage. They're worried about the impacts on hospitals in their districts and job loss. So um, they're really trying to cobble together these votes at the last minute. So, Samia, I know you have been on the ground in a number of states, um, and I think a lot of people may be surprised to even hear that OFA is kind of still in the game now that, you know, uh, 44 is out the White House. Um, you know, what's the latest? What are you guys doing to save, I would say, President Obama's signature accomplishment of the last eight years? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we are interested in making sure that the Americans who gained health insurance under the Affordable Care Act, under Obamacare, are able to continue to use that uh, health care. And, you know, just in the last couple of months, we've had over 900 events. We've made 
46,000 plus calls mm. um, to other supporters to make sure that they're getting out to events, making sure that they're able to call their congressperson, call their senator, and let them know that this repeal bill is, you know, it's not a plan that's going to cover more people. It's gonna, like uh, Maura said, it's going to take health coverage away from 24 million folks. And so, you know, what we're seeing on the ground is a big groundswell of grassroots enthusiasm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, OFA is there to help catch it. We're not the only ones and we're not going to be able to catch it because folks are really getting motivated. So, you know, Planned Parenthood is out there, um, ourselves, Indivisible, groups have sprouted up everywhere. And we're partnering to make sure that we can reach out to our Congress folks, go to town halls, uh, make phone calls and let folks know that, you know, any number of people who lose health coverage because of this repeal and so-called replacement is too many. That's um, right. And any protections that are taken away, uh, you know, again, too many. We've got to make sure that so folks have high. access to health coverage. So, Maura, I, I think one of the big um, questions, uh, I was talking with my mother-in-law the other day about why would Trump be putting forward a bill that makes it more expensive for seniors Um, the one thing he promised is you know you would pay less and we will cover everyone and I mean and so my mother-in-law just really because she's a good person and tries to see good in people she was like well he said one thing this seems to be the opposite (laughs) it is completely the opposite I mean I I think I'm gonna give a flip answer to start and then get into some of the details (laughs) I'm (laughs) to flip it's that kind of thing it's that kind of exactly Um, no I mean he, he obviously does not understand healthcare. He doesn't understand the United States healthcare system. He, um, you know, after starting to dive into this, he suddenly discovered that it's very complicated. Um, and in addition, I just, you know, he said a lot of things on the campaign trail that just are not true. And this bill is horrible for many of his voters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what it does is. The Affordable Care Act, um, if you buy insurance through what we call the individual market, which is basically if you don't have access to insurance through Medicare or Medicaid or your job, you get additional help to help afford um, your coverage. And that those that financial assistance is tied to your income, so people who need more help get more help. And it's also tied to the amount um, that healthcare premiums and out-of-pocket costs actually cost. So you can guarantee for the people who need assistance that as costs go up, their assistance goes up. And the um, repeal bill does not keep that structure. They basically just have flat credits um, that aren't big enough for any age group. And it also allows insurance companies to charge older Americans, those who are 15 and above, um, much higher premiums. Mm. And then you combine that with the fact that rural um, healthcare costs are a lot higher than um, many urban areas because there's just not a lot of competition there. It's just right. harder to not um, as much coverage. Yeah, hard hard to spread out the risk. So when you combine those things, where you have um, rural people who are going to have to pay more, mm-hmm. the credits are not um, attached to the cost of coverage or people's incomes, and then also that they're just simply insufficient to cover the costs. You just have this kind of toxic mix that really harms his rural. Um, working class voters. You know, and and is that something that you find over at OFA you are trying to focus on? Because, I mean, I think, you know, I, I have been trying to spend as much time as I can to really try and understand who the Trump voter is. 
right? Um, you know, particularly those Obama, Obama, Trump voters and who those people are. And in some ways, I think it's incumbent on us to point out these contradictions between this imagined person that maybe some of these people um, thought Trump was versus the reality of making their lives more difficult, harder, more painful, more expensive because he wasn't telling the truth. Yeah, I think that's uh, a great point. I think, you know, what we're really focused on is making sure that these numbers um, or what this bill does, um, you know, it gets out into the ether and folks are equipped with the knowledge of, you know, what the repeal and replace bill is actually going to do to folks, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think it's a, a 64-year-old with you know $26,000 worth of income is going to go from a net premium of $1,700 per year, and that's going to go up to over $12,000 per year, and right. that's just unaffordable. Yeah, uh, it's unaffordable health coverage, and so making sure that those folks know you know what the impact is Wait, on them. Wait, can you repeat that for our listeners? From $1,700 a year now to $14,600 per that's year. An, that's that's the exact number. How can you afford that that's unaffordable yeah and so you know what we want to do is make sure that we're letting the folks know that that's the case and the best way to do that is to you know lift up the stories of folks who are Mm -hmm. actually affected by this Mm -hmm. you know there are um, plenty of folks out there who have been willing to share their personal experience with uh, with Obamacare whether it means that they were able to get life-saving surgery or life-saving cancer treatment you know just in the nick of time or able to you know move Uh, And think about, you know, quitting a job that they didn't especially love to start a new business Mm -hmm. because they no longer had to worry about where they were going to get their health coverage or health insurance from. Um, And I think lifting up those personal stories is one thing that we're definitely focused on and letting folks know. It's so funny that you mentioned that. And more, I'm going to go to because I actually had one of my mentees who who is thinking about leaving her job and starting a business. And. You know, I, in coming to me and asking, you know, my thoughts, I said, you know what, a year ago, I would have told you no problem because you had Obamacare, right? Mm -hmm. Because she's over 26. She's trying to figure this out. Um, And I said, you know, I don't know if Obamacare is going to be there. And I will tell you, you know, you never know when you get sick. You don't, these things just happen. And it it distresses me that I was in some ways kind of impeding on her dream because I was worried about her health care. But yeah. I don't know if it's going to be there. Absolutely. And I mean, even if it's replaced with something, the something is not going to be good. Yeah. And I think the other point is your what you said about you never know if you're going to get sick. The In addition to the increased premium costs, um, The plans that are going to be allowed to be sold under this new regime, if it becomes law, are really skimpy. So they are just not going to provide the same amount of coverage that Affordable Care Act plans do. Um, And it's actually pinning the Republicans in this very odd space because they have attacked the ACA from both the left, Mm -hmm. um, meaning like they've complained about the high deductibles and... Um, the cost of the of the coverage, and then they've also attacked it from the right, saying that like it has to co- you have to cover too many people. So their bill is just going to make deductibles larger. It's going to cover a mm-hmm. smaller percentage of the of your cost. Mm-hmm. So it's not just can you afford the premiums. It's you might get hit 
you know, two months after you make your first premium payment and just have massive thousands of dollars of out-of-pocket costs. Mm. Mm, mm. So, okay, so what do you, you know, so the Freedom Caucus is like, no, you don't have the votes. Paul Ryan is trying every video and PowerPoint slide presentation he can <laughs> around the Capitol. Um, what what do we think, and this vote is on Thursday? Is it's that on true? Thursday, Thursday afternoon, okay. most likely. So are people calling up to the Hill? I mean, what does it look like? Yeah, there are um, just... Thousands of calls, tweets, mm-hmm. um, emails uh, up to the Hill, um, especially for the undecided mm-hmm. um, members. Um, and it's it's there's undecided people in the Freedom Caucus, I think. And then there's also um, the Tuesday group, which is the more moderate wing of the Republican Party. And they have some people who have come out against the bill, and they still have a number of undecided people. So that really, those people are under a, a tremendous amount of pressure to, to really choose a side here. Yeah. And OFA, what are you guys doing? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an all-out blitz, and we need to mm-hmm. make sure we're calling our representatives in Congress and letting them know that we don't um, we can't support this bill. And you know, Paul Ryan and the Republican majority—they're out whipping votes, like you said today. Mm-hmm. They're putting out every PowerPoint presentation <laughs> they can, and you know, the way that we can whip votes is by making those phone calls. And mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important to call the. Uh, congressional switchboard, you know, get in touch with your congressperson um, and let them know that on Thursday when this comes up for a vote, you're one of their constituents and you don't think that this bill passes muster. Um, And, you know, the reasons why is that it's going to kick off more people, um, you know, 24 million people nationwide. Or tell people your own story, right? Yeah, of course. And let them know if you've had a personal experience with health care or with Obamacare, please, please tell them that story and let them know that, you know, you're personally affected by it. I mean, one of the things that um, our listeners can go to uh, Resistance Near Me, if you go and check out uh, my Twitter after the show, there's a toolkit that we will put out about what you can do to get involved. So you can go to at Michelle Jawando and we'll have the toolkit available or you can go to the Leslie Marshall show and we'll put it out there. I think one of the things that people have to remember um, is the moment when the president signed the Affordable Care Act. Um, I don't know if I've even shared this with our listeners before, but both my father-in-law and my brother have benefited from Medicaid expansion and staying on my parents' insurance. Um, And as I've been really dealing with family health crises, I just recognize how fortunate I am to be in a state like Maryland that had Medicaid expansion because of what that meant directly for my family. And to just hear the callousness with these members and talking about, oh, well, these people will be fine and they should, you know, not buy a cell phone. This is not a joke. And these people just don't know what it's like not to be, not to have, and what it means for people to feel safety and comfort because they know they had health care. They don't understand that. No, I mean, and they have fantastic health care coverage. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's all well and good for them to talk about, you know, um, work. You have to work for your health care and, you know, people shouldn't just be given a handout. But, you know, that's not going to make people healthier. It's not going to improve people's lives. That's right. Um, I think the other thing, and I'm glad you mentioned Medicaid, because the the I, I don't even like calling it replacement bill because it's not. It's just it's not <laughs> anything that's 
the pretend bill. I was so I'm, like, at a loss. <laughs> Anyhow, so the bill actually um, has there were some changes made last night to appease some of the Freedom Caucus people. But the original bill cuts eight hundred and eighty billion dollars from the Medicaid program over 10 years. I mean, that's just so astronomical. It's a it's a quarter of the Medicaid program. And it's coming out of, it's basically telling states that they can no longer have the Medicaid expansion. But it's also destroying what, what we call traditional Medicaid. So the Medicaid program that was in existence before the Affordable Care Act. So, so Maura, you know, I can't believe how quickly we've gotten to the end of this segment, which is insane. So we'll have to bring you on. But one thing that I've been trying to do, because we know this president reads Twitter. It's like the only thing he reads. But 140 characters or less. Samya and Mora, what do you tweet to this president? Uh, I wouldn't tweet to the president. I would tweet to your member of Congress. Uh, okay. And, you know, I would just go ahead and let them know that, you know, you've got a personal story with health care and say, you know, care not chaos and you don't support this, like I said, so-called replacement bill. Care not chaos. I like no, it. Don't take my care. Don't take my care. Hashtag, you heard it here. Mora and Samya, thank you so much for everything you do on health care and trying to make the Affordable Care Act for everybody still a reality. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back with Talk Media News after the break. Thanks so much. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. I am back with Talk Media News, none other than Luke Vargas. Luke, welcome to The Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thanks. So, Luke, what is the latest? Did the FBI wiretap in Trump? We've been hearing about it for the last three weeks, but there seems to be some Russian crime ring connection. What's the latest? This is an amazing scoop coming from ABC this morning. It turns out, uh, according to their sources, that from 2011 to 2013, the FBI was wiretapping Trump Tower after it learned that a top Russian mafia boss, a man by the name or nickname Little Taiwanese, was running a $50 million money laundering operation out of a pair of apartments on the 63rd floor of Wait Trump a minute. Tower. Are you serious? <laughs> uh, they, they put out a warrant for this guy after the investigation ended in 2013. Interpol put out a red notice calling for this guy to be arrested and extradited. Suffice it to say, that didn't work. He is still at large. And I have to say, in perhaps the most colorful anecdote in this whole crazy story, he was spotted near Donald Trump in the VIP section of the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow in 2013. So, again, this story does not claim any sort of ties between Trump and this mafia ring, but it is just 
the craziest possible thing to turn up after Trump himself <laughs> put all this wiretapping stuff into the headline. <laughs> I mean, we are never going to hear the end of this. Why? I mean, it, it, the intrigue just continues. I mean, I, I, I just don't even know where to go with that one. So I'm, I might put a pin on it because I know I it won't be Until the last. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, Luke, and what's the latest? We've we just heard, well, obviously, we know about Muslim ban 1.0 and 2.0, but now um, a ban on electronics from certain Muslim countries. What's that about? You cannot bring anything larger than a cell phone now in the cabin with you if you're flying from one of 10 airports in the Middle East or North Africa. This does not apply to U.S. airlines that are flying out of those same countries. Luke, we're Uh, out of time. But next time, thank you so much, my friend. This is Luke Vargas from Talk Media News. This is Michelle Jawando. Thank you so much. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. Until the next time. How to show up with Coca-Cola Energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.